you have your Bibles this morning, I ask that you turn to Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, Romans. Romans and chapter number 6. Romans and chapter number 6. Our text for today will come from verses 19 through 23, but for context's sake, I do want to begin reading in verse number 15. And of course, as always, as I endeavor to do, to try to bring us back and to bring us to where we are within the epistle, within the heart and the mind of Paul as he writes, and then also where God would intend us to be. So in Romans chapter number 6, starting in verse number 15, the apostle asks the question, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. Lord, it is so abundant. Lord, it is not cheap. Lord, we take so much for granted. Lord, the things that we have in our life, the possessions that we have, the things by which you have graced us. And Lord, including in that so many times is our salvation. So Lord, I pray this morning, as we gather together, Lord, whether it be here in the building or whether we are gathered around our kitchen tables or our cabinets or within our rooms at home, wherever we may be, as your church, as your people, Lord, I pray this morning. If anything else, Lord, help us to taste the grace that you have given us. 
Lord, grant us to understand that grace. Lord, to know it intimately. Oh, Lord, not just the simple definition of unmerited favor. But, Lord, grant us to see what it cost. Grant us to see that it is not cheap. And, Lord, grant us to see as to why you gave it to us. Lord, the words of Paul are very piercing. Lord, they are very blunt. Lord, they are very open. Lord, so I pray that you would pierce our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would ram home the gospel into our souls once again. Lord, that we may taste and see that Jesus Christ, he is good. Lord, guide my words and my thoughts Lord, that I might speak, that I might proclaim not my own ideas, but Lord, only simply what you yourself have proclaimed in your God-breathed word. And Lord, to those who hear, Lord, let them hear with that spiritual ear. Open up our hearts that we might understand the person and the work of Christ, that we not take him or his work for granted, but understand why that work was done, why you ordained it, why you commissioned it, Lord, that we might live appropriately and obediently unto you. Lord, these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our King. Amen. Amen. As we have traveled over the last several months through the epistle of Romans, Paul has laid out in the first five chapters the principles of salvation. He has pointed out with great diligence the depravity of man that we knew God but did not honor or glorify him as God and exchanged him for a God of our own creation, a God of our own image. God has turned us over to a reprobate mind. And there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can say, nothing within our own ability and power that can in any way Bring us into an accepted standing of righteousness before a holy, majestic, and all-righteous God. We are not righteous. We are all gone astray. We do not fear God. But yet, Christ, His righteousness has been revealed. His righteousness is imputed unto us by faith. Therefore, it is not our own righteousness, but it is a foreign righteousness that allows us to stand before a holy and a righteous God. As such, as we find in Romans chapter number 5 and verse 1, he sums everything up in the principles of salvation that we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer are we enemies. No longer is he an enemy to us. No longer are we an enemy to him. No longer are we at war, but we are at peace. And that we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. 
in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He then goes on to conclude these principles in verse number 12, and he says that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And there he lays out his conclusion, stating that we are born in Adam. That is why we sin. Because we are born in Adam. His sin is given unto us, and the penalty that was due unto Adam is due unto us as well. But in like manner as Adam was that type, we have the type of Jesus Christ. Who we who believe, we who believe by faith, whose righteousness has been imputed unto us, we being in Christ, now have been given life. And he closes out these principles in verse number 20 of chapter 5. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul could end his epistle there and have completed the beauties and the glory of salvation, but yet he does not. Instead, he answers a contention. Because we being by design creatures of law, but yet we are by nature after the fall creatures of lawlessness. So when the man hears that salvation is by grace through faith, that the righteousness needed to be accepted to stand before a holy God is not something that we attain to of our own merit, but of merit of Jesus Christ that is imputed unto us, the natural man responds by saying, well, I don't have to do anything. I can live how I want to live. I can sin how I want to sin. All the debt has been paid, praise the Lord, I'm now going to live my life the way that I want to live it and just simply claim the blood of Jesus Christ. It is this question that Paul answers in chapter number 6. He asks the question at the beginning. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he lays for two arguments, two arguments that contend for our obedience, that contend for our desire to live righteously. The first argument he makes is that we are in union 
with Christ. That we have died with him, we have been buried with him, and we have been resurrected with him. If that be so, let me correct myself, since that be so, how could we live unto sin which has no more dominion over us? And he goes to argue in verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, or brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Subject. Grace has the dominion now. He then asks the question again. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And then he goes on to remind them of a truth that they already were very well aware of. He uses the example of a slave. And he gives certain aspects of a slave. Certain truths that they are very well familiar with. And it is this that we looked at the last time we were together. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves, yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The first thing we looked at last time with the slave is that who you are obedient to reveals your master. People will know your master by your works. We also considered the fact that our obedience was not delayed. Not with hesitation. The example we used was concerning a soldier who enlisted in the army... Once they enlisted, there was no delay in their enlistment. Once they were in, they were in. They were subject to the laws and the regulations of the army. There was no time for them to live as they wanted to live. They were subject to the laws at that time. And such as we yield ourselves unto obedience unto God, we ourselves, there is no delay. We are immediate in our surrender. We also saw that this enlistment or this being a slave was not something that we did. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, passive voice. God ordained unto us to be slaves of righteousness. That word or that phrase, standard of teaching, speaks of a form or a mold 
where if we as like molten metal would be poured into to take the shape or the form of, God poured us into the mold. We didn't jump out of our old mold and jump into the new mold. We wouldn't fit. But God had to bring us down, break us down, and then pour us into that new mold. And he has done just that to every believer. So what we find is that we were once slaves of sin, but now have become obedient from the heart. That's the total man. Understand our obedience is not just simply a work of the flesh. It's not behavior change, but our entire nature is new. We are new creatures. No longer slaves of sin, but now slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Just some understanding the characteristics of slavery. Now, bring us to our text for today. Paul is not done with his argument. What he has pointed out at this point is that we are always, forever, a slave. Even when we are free from sin, we have been made slaves unto righteousness. Now he goes on in verse 19 to interject this thought. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm using an example that you are familiar with, that you understand, so I can expound something that is far above the ability of the human mind to comprehend in totality. The reason he knows that is because of the questions that continue to be asked, not only in his day, but even in our day. Why don't I just go on and sin? The same battle that Paul fought 2,000 years ago, the church has fought all the way through, even unto today, and has been representative and evidence of our human limitations. He says, so I'm going to speak to you about something that you understand so that you can get a picture, you can get a type of exactly what I'm talking about. The first thing he does, he talks about, is he's going to talk about, and our title of our message today are our slaves' expectations. If we are forever a slave, a slave has expectations. What should we expect in our life? Three things we will look at this morning regarding a slave's expectations. One is a slave's progression. In verse number 19, we will also see a slave's production in verses number 20 through 22. And we will see a slave's provision in verse number 23. So let's look first when considering a slave's expectations, a slave's progression. Notice, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Four. Just as you once presented your members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. He simply uses a descriptive verb 
to state how we once lived. He says, just as you once presented. There was a time in time past where you yielded your members. You submitted your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole will, your whole body, your whole nature unto impurity. You were governed by it. You willfully submitted to it. To impurity. Now, word impurity, that brings up some deep meat here. Impurity, its root is a ceremonial word, meaning clean. It was a word used to describe someone such as a priest who was to go before the Almighty God. He must first be cleansed. He must first be purified. We actually saw this word used on Wednesday night as we were looking at Hebrews chapter number 10. So I do want you to look at Hebrews 10. I can't hear your pages rustling over the internet, so I will try to move as slowly as I can, simply for Miss Newby's sake, if anything else. Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 22, we will begin there. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before a priest could enter in, before he could approach the holy God, he must be made ceremonially clean. Now there's two aspects to this cleansing that I want to point out because it does give us a greater understanding of this impurity that we once submitted ourselves to. So turn, if you will, first to Titus chapter number 3. Titus chapter number 3. Just a few pages back to your left. Titus chapter number 3. And starting in verse number 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we consider this cleansing, this washing of the believer, it is done by the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated, we are renewed by Him. Holy Spirit. Second thing, Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians 5, and let's look at verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. So two aspects when we consider it as believers that are true in our life. We are given access unto the sovereign, holy, righteous God, not of our own works, but that we have been cleansed by the Spirit of God and washed by His Word. So in looking back to Romans chapter number 6, we have a greater understanding of this impurity. This is not an impurity set by man. This is an impurity established by God. Anything that is outside the leading of the sovereign Holy Spirit, anything that is outside, disobedient to the authority of the Word of God, is impurity. It is very exclusive. And what that creates is a very broad stroke when we consider all of the things that we once yielded ourselves to, though they may have been seen as good in the eyes of man, they may have been seen as moral in the eyes of the religious, but yet if they were outside, the sanctification of the Spirit of God and outside the authority of the Word of God, they were, regardless, impure. And it is that impurity that we had surrendered, yielded, presented our members unto. But not only impurity, he also describes our master as lawlessness. Now, we've already seen this Greek word. We talk about those who desire to live without law, to sin as they want to sin and live as they want to live, as antinomian. The word for lawlessness is anomia, without law. Okay? So we've seen this word. They've submitted themselves to impurity and to living outside of or without the law. But notice the progression. They submit themselves unto impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now let's, let's, let's start to tie some of Romans together here. I would be amiss by saying that it's just now getting exciting, but it is. Look back to Romans chapter number 1. Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. God was holy. God was righteous. God was pure. But they rejected the pure. And they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me just say this. They created their own gods. They didn't like the purity of God, so they created a God of an image. 
Now, when God created man, he created him in his own image for the purpose of his glory. The desire of the creator within his creation is that his creation glorifies him. We can call that general rule number one if you want. So whenever man, having rejected God, creates his own image, his intent and purpose is the same as God's. He desires that himself be glorified. So he picks and chooses the attributes of God that he likes. And he disregards the attributes that he don't like. He even puts a label underneath his God of God or Christ. But yet the God or Christ that he worships and serves is not the God or Christ of Scripture. It is, in essence, his own self. And in verse number 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to what? Impurity, same word. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So let's look at what happens here. As we yielded ourselves into impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. There was a progression there that in the one that we gazed upon, the one that we served, the one that we worshiped, we became more and more and more like it. There's a progression in slavery. Slavery is not static. There is movement in slavery. The more that you do that of your master, the more you become like your master. The more we served and worshiped impurity and lawlessness, the more it led unto us being impure and lawless. There was a progression there. And that progression, which is to be expected in slavery, was true not only then, but it's true now. Back to chapter 6. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We now yield, we subject our members as instruments to righteousness, slaves to righteousness, obedient without hesitation, with the whole heart unto righteousness. And as we submit unto righteousness, we become sanctified. There is a progression there. We submit unto righteousness, and we ourselves are led unto sanctification. The word sanctification, there is the word for holy. We need to understand that the intention behind God and his salvation was not simply for our sake, but that we be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. It wasn't to simply be saved and then static. 
but it was to be saved and then a progression of sanctification as we are serving righteousness unto holiness. Let's look, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. Second Corinthians chapter number three, verse number 17, second Corinthians 3:17. "Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the more we gaze upon Christ, the more we look to His righteousness, the more we have submitting ourselves to be obedient to Him, the more we are being conformed to that very image. As Paul lays out his arguments, he has stated some general facts about slavery and being a slave. But now he gets to the answering of the question that has been posed. Are we to continue in sin? No, no, no. Because we have been saved unto progress. That we are to progress unto sanctification and holiness. There is a progression in our slavery. There is also production in our slavery. Verse number 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves back then, back before you believed and surrendered yourself unto Christ, Back then, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you were destitute of righteousness. Righteousness had nothing to do with you, and you had nothing to do with righteousness. Let's go back, and again, I want to start tying all this together. Let's go back to Romans 1, and let's continue where we were. Verse number 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is what, happened when you, what happens when you submit to impurity. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Remember? destitute of righteousness. Nothing to do with righteousness. Righteousness has nothing to do with them. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Maliciousness, let me stop and pause. Destitute of righteousness, nothing to do with righteousness. 
They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, destitute of righteousness. Though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. They are destitute of righteousness. Chapter 3, he goes on to say in verse 11, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ashes under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They have nothing to do with righteousness. When you were slaves, back in Romans 6 verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with you. But he then asks a question. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He draws them back to a great principle. When a master hires a slave, captures a slave, purchases a slave, he does so with a purpose. He does not redeem them simply that they might be redeemed. He does not purchase them simply that he, they might be purchased. But when a master brings a slave into his household, he has a job for them to do. Whether it be in the kitchen, whether it be in the fields, whatever it may be, there is need, there is purpose, there is production expected of that slave. And it is that principle that Paul is drawing the reader back to. He says, but what fruit? You know this. You know that when a master redeems a slave, he's got something for him to do. He's got an expectation. Something they're supposed to produce. And when the believer considers those fruit that he produced back then. What fruit were you getting at that time? From the things that you are now ashamed. He's drawing them back to the principle that we are to bear fruit. There is an expectation of production in the life of a slave. Look down. Chapter 7, verse 4. I'm excited about getting to chapter 7. He begins another example. Still answering the same question, by the way, in chapter 7. Explaining even in deeper, in a broader context as to why we live the way we live as believers. And he uses the example of marriage. One whose husband or wife or spouse had died, that they were free to marry another. 
Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why? Here's the purpose. In order that we may bear fruit for God. What's the purpose of a marriage? To have children, to bear fruit. Same is true in our marriage to Christ. It's not just to be married to be married. Though how glorious and wonderful that is. But it is to bear fruit for God. Turn, if you will, to John 15. I can't, I'd be remiss if I didn't go there. Christ in his final words before crucifixion, giving... Uh, a charge unto his disciples. Verse number eight, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is what glorifies God. This is what God desires. God desires glory. What glorifies him? When you bear fruit. You who were dead in trespasses and sins and without life, suddenly there is life within you and you bear fruit unto holiness. Verse number 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Verse 16, here we go. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? For what? That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. He didn't choose us. From eternity past, just to be chosen. He didn't purchase us at the cross just to be purchased. He didn't appoint us just to say we're appointed. But he chose us, he redeemed us, and he appointed us for the purpose that we bear fruit and that our fruit should remain or abide. Back to Romans 6. There is an expectation of a production, fruit. And he calls to that principle saying, what fruit are you getting? This is fruit that back then you were, now when you look back you're ashamed. You know, the believer's memory is not wiped clean when they come to Christ. We remember who we once were. But when we think of our slavery to sin and impurity and lawlessness, we don't look back at it and giggle and laugh and glory upon it. We're ashamed of it. God have mercy on us. We're ashamed of it. We look back and we, we don't want people to know. We hope that that gets swept under the rug that people don't recognize. Oh, but if they do. If it is called into question, I can say it is not of me that I am what I am, but by the grace of God. But there is a shame. 
And there is an assumption that Paul's making as he writes to the church, those who are called, those that are elect, that's who he's writing to, Romans 1-7. There's an assumption he's making that when they think back on those things, they are ashamed. Question, are you ashamed of those things? I'll leave that right there. We should be. For the end of those things is death. And in there he's pointing them back to his concluding thoughts in Romans 5. Those that are in Adam, death spread to all men because all sinned. The end of those things, all those things you've accomplished, those things unto impurity, could have been moral, could have been greatly praised in the eyes of men, could have been highly rewarded and highly deemed, but yet they're nothing. They're vanity. The end of those things is death. It doesn't change anything. You're still in Adam. You're still dying. That's the production that was there. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, by the way, aorist, passive, boom, one time, you're no longer a slave, you're now a slave to sin, you're now a slave unto God, okay? There's no delay, no lag. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. There was an expected fruit to a slave of sin. That led to death. There is also a slave of uh, expectation of the slave of God that leads to sanctification. Well, what do you mean by sanctification? Let's look. Look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should. That. Here's the purpose. There was a reason he chose. That we should be holy and blameless before him. There's a purpose there. There's a fruit he's desiring. Okay, there's a production from our slavery. Turn over one page if you will to chapter number 2. And let's start in verse number 8. We like Ephesians 2 verse 8. We like Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. But oh so often we stop right there. We stop with we've been chosen. We stop with we've been appointed. We stop with we've been redeemed. And we Leave out verse 10, which was the purpose for all of those things in the first place. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. All of grace. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Don't stop, keep going. Why? For reasoning. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus does it stop there? No, 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 no. Four good works which God prepared when? Beforehand. Think about that. 
He didn't save you and think, well, what can I have Tina do? No, he already had a job. Appointed you from the womb. The works were already ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. One last, very common, we like these, I like these, Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2, verse number 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Does it stop right there? No, it keeps going. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Period? No. From all lawlessness. Period? No. And to purify for himself a people. Period? No. For his own possession who are what? Zealous of good works. We were saved with a purpose. To bear fruit. We weren't saved simply to be saved. We weren't purchased as a slave simply to be purchased. We were purchased with an expectation of production. And that sanctification, chapter number 6 again. And it's in which is eternal life. That's the intention behind it all. That's the purpose and the end state of everything that God is doing. From the choosing to the redeeming to the drawing, to the perseverance. It's all with the purpose that we would have eternal life. God gets no greater glory than when a dead man is brought to life. It's for that reason that it was after Lazarus that the Pharisee said, we got to do something. After that, it was just talking, or before that, it was just talking chit-chat, idle conversation at the water cooler. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, an act that only God could do, they knew they were about to lose their power and lose their own glory, and they had to do something. There is no other act including creation. Because creation, before it was creation, wasn't an enemy of God. It didn't exist. But we, in our creation, were enemies of God. Yet God, by His grace, turned us unto Him for the purpose of eternal life. That's the end of that fruit. Let me look, let's, let's look, John chapter number 4. If you think I'm being long-winded, you just sit in because I'm not done. John chapter number 4 and his interchange is uh, with the woman at the well. 
Verse number 9, he says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you what? Living water. That's what he's wanting to give. Listen, he wasn't wanting to give this woman water from a well or, or any something temporal. He had living water to offer her. Turn to John chapter number 6. Look at verse number 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse number Starting verse 49, or verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John chapter number 17, that high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken, verse 1, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give what? Eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a deeper definition of eternal life. Let's just stop right there for a moment. We're not talking quantity. We're talking quality. When God gives us eternal life, when he breathes life into our dead soul, when he quickens us according to Ephesians 2, it's not something that comes after we physically die. We are given life right then, right there, right now. First John chapter number 2. And this is the promise, verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. This was his promise from the beginning. This was his desire from the beginning. Eternal life. This is what he wants. This is the end state he's desiring. Chapter number 5, verse 11, 1 John 5, 11. And this is his testimony, the testimony that God gave us eternal life and the life of his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The end state that God desires, the end that He wants, is eternal life. Understand, if we are to rule and to reign with Him, if we are to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if Jesus Christ is eternal, we must be eternal as well. 
So when God chose us, when He redeemed us, when He drew us, and as He perseveres for us or preserves us, He does it with the intent and purpose in mind that He had in the beginning that we would have eternal life and be joint heirs, conformed to the image of His Son. So we have seen the expectations. We've seen the progression. He whom we serve, we become like them. It's a never-ending attainment. If we serve lawlessness, we become lawless. If we discern righteousness, we become sanctified. We find there is an expectation of production. There is a fruit that is desired. The fruit of the former man, the old man, is that of death. It doesn't remain. But that fruit of ours is holiness. It is righteousness. It is good works. It is obedience unto Christ. And the end of which is eternal life. The last thing we look at here in verse 23 is the provision. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember Memorizing this verse many, many years ago when I was a child. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. But back then I didn't realize just how wonderful and glorious this verse actually is. He says, for the wages of sin, he's beginning to draw everything together. Not just in this uh, writing regarding slavery, but everything regarding the question of should we continue in sin? And he's drawing everything to a conclusion. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Now let's understand. One thing, sin and death are never separated. You can go back and look at Genesis chapter number 2. And we recognize that when man sinned in the garden, death was sure to follow. Guaranteed. We find in James 1.15 that sin, when it is fully grown, fully matured, leads to death. Let's look at Isaiah. Here's a good one we haven't seen before. Isaiah chapter number 1. Isaiah, Old Testament. We'll start in verse number 27. I'll give you a second. Isaiah chapter number 1, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together, and none to quench them. Where there is disobedience, where there is rebellion, where there is sin, judgment and death are guaranteed to follow. You can't separate the two. Let me put it to you this way. The only thing that sin has to claim as its own is death. Now with that thought in mind, let me expose another truth to you. I can only get paid 
what my boss has already earned. I can only get paid from the possessions that my boss already has. So when we consider a wage, it's a word used to describe a soldier's provision, his rations, okay? Typically used to sustain him. He doesn't just pay a soldier to have that soldier uh, accrue wealth. Okay, that's not the purpose that you pay a soldier. I was one, I know. You don't pay them anything. You pay them so they got something to live on. They got a house, got some food. Okay? You pay them so they can sustain themselves. The wages, what is deserved, the only thing that sin can pay is what it already possesses, which is death. The wages of sin is death. It's what you deserve. Romans 5, chapter, or verse 12. That's the end. That's all that sin has to offer. That's what sustains the sinner is death. Think about that. That's what you live for. All the fruit you bear, all the labor you involve yourself in, all for your own glory and your own morality and your own righteousness. In the end, all you're doing is just chasing after death. For the wages of sin is death. Sin can only offer what it already owns, which is death. That's what it pays you in because that's what you deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Notice, Paul doesn't say the wage that God gives because a wage is something that is earned. He says the free gift. It's by grace. And again, he's tying it all back into Romans 5. He says it's a gift. You couldn't earn it. The only thing you deserve, the only thing you can earn is death. So God has to give. If God wants you to be able to fulfill his purpose as a slave, he's got to give you something that you don't have right now. He's got to give you a gift. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. But notice the parallel here. Sin pays a wage because that's what that soldier is going to sustain himself with. God gives you a gift not just to give you a gift. It's not just to give you eternal life and say I'm going to live forever. I'm not just given justification, so now I can go to heaven. Oh, but oh, how that is taught in so many churches. I am saved. I am given this gift of eternal life, not for the quantity, but for the quality. It is the wage that is given to me that sustains me. It is this gift that is given me so that I can be sustained. It is the life of Christ in me that sustains me as a slave under righteousness. Not my own works, not my own ability, but only that gift, that eternal life that God has given me. Now, how did he give it to me? 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's drawing everything back to the end of Romans. That's, he's not just on a rabbit trail here. Oh, we preachers, we go on rabbit trails. He's not just on a rabbit There's a purpose behind chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and so on. There's a purpose behind it. And he's drawing, he's closing that up. And he says that this is a gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Notice the similarity to that wording and to what you see in verse 21 of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through our own merit, through our own ability, through our own righteousness. No, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason it's all of grace, the reason it's all of faith, is not that you live how you want to live and just claim eternal life. Grace was given unto us that we might be obedient slaves producing fruit unto holiness. And he provides for us a provision of eternal life that we can do just that. Now, as it brought us back to Romans chapter number 5, I've got to ask the question again. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to sin, verse 15, because we are not under law but under grace? No, 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 no. It should be understood that we are to live unto holiness. But here's the problem. Here's the issue in Paul's day, and here is the issue in our day. And here will be the issue in the days to come. We don't understand or comprehend grace. I think that's the reason Paul started out in verse 19 saying, listen, this is a complex, high-level truth regarding grace. Don't make it as simple as you want it to with your human thinking that I can just do how I want to do because it's all under the blood. Let me give you a story. When I was a child, I was obnoxious and selfish, like most children are. I'm not trying to make y'all, but that's who I was. I was selfish like any other 8, 9, 10-year-old. And in the early 80s, my father was, had worked at combustion engineering, been laid off a couple of times, worked a couple of jobs, get laid off. Difficult economy, recession, the late 70s, early 80s. And he being an electrician by trade and in the Navy, he went off on a task to start his own business as an electrician. He's a partner with a, another, a friend from, from church. And they started their own business, E&B Electric. And he struggled. We were not a family of means by any means. My mother taught piano lessons for 3 or $5 an hour or something like that. It was nothing. And she taught piano lessons five days a week. My dad worked, struggled, tried to find work, tried to find business. But I was very selfish. 
and I was on a Big Mac kick. I was a growing boy. And when I wanted a Big Mac, Mama, let's go get me a Big Mac. I had learned how to like them. I don't like them anymore, but I liked a Big Mac. Well, my mom, who was a former math teacher uh, at Rossville High School back in the 60s, she had all the entire budget on this big, huge, green piece of paper with all these like accounting lines and categories on This is before Excel and computers, of course. And so what she would do is when I said, Mama, I want a Big Mac. Can we go get a Big Mac? And the you know, money probably wasn't there. She'd say, okay, we're going to give you a Big Mac. Let's go get a Big Mac. But I want you, when we pay for it, when you come back home, you have to write down that was $1.25 in that category of Big Mac, Chris's food, Okay. The reason she did that is she wanted, to wanted me to recognize that, listen, that provision that was given to me, that grace that I did not deserve, I did not deserve a Big Mac, but somebody paid for that. Somebody toiled for that, $1.25. Somebody labored and bled for that, $1.25, that I could go get me a Big Mac. The reason we as the church live like we want to live and do like we want to do and just simply claim the blood and it's all under grace is because we like that seven, eight, nine year old boy do not understand the cost of that grace. To help expound this, I want to turn to some words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's one of my heroes. He was a German Lutheran pastor during the rise of Nazism in the, in the 30s in Germany. He was later hung in his opposition under the Nazi party. But he wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, these words. And I say this so I want us to understand this cost. Because I want us to understand this grace, this gift that's given to us. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. 
And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has, got, what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Are we to continue in sin? We whom God chose before the foundation of the world, we whom God redeemed, we who looked upon Christ, rejected and despised Him, he who was pierced, he who was crushed, he upon whom our iniquity was cast, all according to the will and the good pleasure of the Father. Are we to continue in sin? We whom the shepherd gave his life for. We whom the shepherd went out after when we were lost. We whom the woman looked persevering until she found. We who the father picked up his robe and spread it across town in humility when he saw his son approaching and did not stop there and make him a servant, but reinstated him as a son. And he killed the fatted calf. Are we to continue in sin? We who are kept by Jesus Christ. We who stumble and fall, but yet God is faithful. Are we to continue in sin? No, 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 no. 